Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. We're back with the usual crew here today. Missing Jose Payne. But we got Abby. Abby, what are you, you're scrolling on your phone over there. You're being a distracted millennial at the start of this podcast. What are you doing? I'm trying to find a picture of you uh, just a couple minutes ago when you showed us what's underneath your hat. Ah, James? You're, there's some Legos nearby where you're hanging out. What, what are you doing over there? Uh, well, Monday is, uh, what do they call it, launch day at Boulder Valley School District, which in other words means that my kid has no real online learning. She just has sort of like assignments that she kind of has to do. And in me looking for a quiet spot in the house, I am in our spare bedroom in the basement sitting at my kid's Lego table. Perfect. That's exactly where I want to be. Uh, can we just spend all morning doing Legos? That I sounds like to. a better a better use of our time, honestly. Dame Cash, I see a bike in the background. Have you been riding at all lately? Too cold for that. It's been quite cold. Yeah. There's just too much snow on the ground for me to want to go outside at all. Uh, That's a good point. I mean, even if I could ride in it, even if I wouldn't fall over, uh, it would still be too cold. So now I'm yeah. just going to wait till July, probably. <laughs> It'll be warm by then, I think. Yeah, the skinny tires in the wintertime in Colorado not the best combination. Shoddy Dave, your hair is looking magnificent today. Uh, could you just give us like a tip or two? Like what Like what are you using? What product? What, uh, what are you doing? Absolutely nothing. That's what I'm doing. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> but can I just say, why on earth do you call them Legos? It's Lego. I know I'm not like the best with grammar, as if anybody saw the tweet that Kaylee put out about my um, the way I spell or write stuff on the website over Christmas. But it's definitely not Legos. It's Lego. I've never seen that Danish firm stick an S on any of their things. Wait, is Lego the plural of Lego? It's just Lego. It's just just I've, Lego is Lego if it's one or many. <laughs> <laughs> you Americans, you're crazy. <laughs> Well, that we can cert- certainly certify right now. I feel You're like I feel crazy. like I feel like we say Legos. I think Legos is a thing here. Like I it don't is, think James definitely. has made that up. Yeah, no, I did not. But that's wrong. <laughs> All right, so podcast <laughs> listeners out there, uh, let us know: is Lego plural for Lego? We need to know this. Someone, someone like higher up. We got to have a listener that works at Lego. There's got to be one, right? Let us know. What the proper way? The non-standard plural form Legos is chiefly American. Other regions tend to use Lego as a mass noun. Dane, oh, hey, don't, there you go. don't use Google on us. Oh, what are Wikipedia. you doing? Wikipedia, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, that, that's direct from Wikipedia. Quote. Well, that's that kind of ruins it because I was kind of, actually kind of hoping to have a have an inside line to Lego uh, to someone at Lego so I could you know, oh, good point. figure out a way to get it. We can cut yeah, that. Because, we can cut because, I, because I want yeah. a discount on like the full size Star Wars Millennium Millennium Falcon. Oh, that's worth like, cutting. Like, oh, really, really big one. Yeah. Yes. Those things are like so multiple bad. grand worth. I know. That's why so James wants an insight. I know. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can't pay retail for that. Uh, friends, we have bicycle things to talk about today. Mm. We do have some bicycle things. We have mm. we have uh, Mark Hershey in the news. Uh, this sort of revelation of the Tour de France and a bunch of other races actually this year. Uh, some transfer action happening after the usual. January 1st, sort of not really a deadline, but after the sort of normal time that people switch over. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. We're talking about Bahrain and Trek GC rider plans. We're talking about Walt Van Aert and his contract talks. Kofidis has a women's team. 
And Pauline Ferrand Prevost has switched teams. And we got, unfortunately, a somewhat minor cancellation with the Challenge Mallorca. We're going to talk, talk about that in a little bit. And then, in today's Nerd Alert, as we promised in a previous episode, we're going to be digging in a little bit into PFAS. Uh, these are the chemicals found all over the place, including in lots of lubricants and things like that. And, uh, well, some of them, we shouldn't say all of them, some of them are extremely bad for the environment, bad for people, dangerous, and, well, cleanup operations have sort of just begun on these things. The, the, the sort of broader scientific community has only somewhat recently realized how bad this stuff is. And James, you talked to somebody who is in the know on this subject, and we're going to be digging into that for Nerd Alert. Uh, before we... Before we let go of the whole Lego thing, one other piece of news that we're just that we're just going to bring up right now: Lego does now have a, uh, a set that includes a Lego cargo bike. So I must get my hands on this somewhere. Whoa! So just like full size or tiny? Oh no, 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 no tiny. tiny. <laughs> yeah, and it's like and it's like a it's like a tricycle type cargo bike, sort of like what Ian has, like the, the two mm. front wheels, two wheels up front. I've been thinking about one of those for getting around in the winter time around here. Like you put some, you put a studded rear tire on that thing, you can go go anywhere. In the snow, whatever. It'd be sweet. Sliding around, do donuts in the parking lot? Ooh. Totally. It'd be amazing. Anyway, this week's podcast is brought to you by Continental Tires. Now, you're going to be hearing me say that for a while this year. <laughs> because next week's podcast is also brought to you by Continental. And what yes. after that? Yes. We are extremely excited to announce that Continental has partnered with us for the entire year of podcasts. We have so many different things we're going to be telling you about Continental Tires. We are very excited to have them on as a partner for the entire year. Continental is actually celebrating its 150th birthday at the end of this year. And of course, they offer an extensive range of cycling tires from top of the line, road racing tires clinchers, tubeless, whatever you want, gravel tires, commuting tires, mountain bike tires, everything you could possibly want from Continental. Abby? The first time I ever was, uh, I got I ever got into cycling when I was on the CU cycling team and I had to buy my first set of tires. Um, I went into a bike shop in Boulder and I was looking around and I was like, I don't know what to get. And I got the Grand Prix Four Season because like you were just talking about with the roads in Colorado, I was like, oh, these are going to be great. And they lasted me so long. Like, I do not change tires. I don't. So I just thought it was cool that they're sponsoring the podcast because it was the first set of tires I ever purchased. And uh, they were great tires. We're super excited about it. Uh, the that's, I would say the Grand Prix Four Season, Grand Prix 4000 certainly, is in sort of the the pantheon of all-time great tires. Wouldn't you say, James? Yeah, I'd say so, especially in particular the Four Seasons one because that one's sort of legendary for a lot of a lot of adherence for kind of durability, just kind of all-around good performance. So you'll be hearing a lot more about Continental on this podcast throughout the rest of the year. Big, humongous thanks to Conti for coming on as our partner for the entirety of 2021. Our promise is we will keep the ads interesting. We will find new and interesting things to tell you about Continental every single week between now and the end of December. <laughs> what what I liked is in the run sheet for this episode, Abby had put 
has anybody got any some interesting stories about using continental tyres? And like, nobody replied because basically an interesting story is, oh, I was out training, I was out racing on such and such tyre and uh, it's some glass, ripped a sidewall. And it's like, no, no, no one's got interesting stories like that about ruining a continental <laughs> tyre. <laughs> basically, it's a product that um, if it's there and doing its job, you forget about it. Doing that's the whole point good. yeah if you're reminded of your tires that's a bad thing now with that let's move on into the rest of the episode i believe we want to start with mark hershey transfer news of well last week now dane you want to fill us in yeah i think this happened mid podcast last week so we didn't really talk about it then but uh th- there's two big parts of this news i mean first of all this isn't a this is not a conventional transfer Mark Hershey was signed through the end of this year with the former Team Sunweb, currently known as Team DSM. And then all of a sudden, he wasn't. He was no longer with Team DSM. They put out a press release uh, announcing that their, you know, one of their biggest stars of last year, really, uh, was departing. A rider who won a stage and came close to taking two others at last year's tour. And then proved he was not just a flash in the pan. Was third at Worlds, one flash alone, second at Liège. Could have done more at Liège. We'll never know because uh, Jean Alaphilippe decided to illegally cut him off in the sprint finish. Um, yeah, big, big uh, get, uh, and and just a really strong developing rider for for uh, for Sunweb. No longer with the team, and there were all, all like immediately there were rumors of where he was going, and a lot of them pointed to. UAE, UAE Team Emirates, and that is exactly where he ended up. Uh, we now know officially he is headed to, actually he's on now, it's it's official already, he's at UAE Team Emirates, uh, and a, that's a big, big signing for that team, uh, and a big loss for the Sunweb DSM organization, because he came up with that team, and yeah, I mean, you don't usually like to see riders go to other teams after you've developed them, particularly after they've had great years. Uh, and I cannot think of a team that has had that happen more times. It's not even close than Sunweb slash DSM. I mean, this is just something that they do over and over. They develop these riders. They're a good team for developing talents and bidding them farewell as soon as they get pretty good. Uh, so, yeah, this is uh, going to be. It's, I, I don't know how they're going to replace this this uh, the talent that that they're losing here with Hershey. I mean, th- this was their best. I think their their best up and coming rider. Uh, from from last year, uh, you can make a case for uh, Jai Hindley as well. Uh, yeah, big big loss for them. He 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 is one of the rare riders that went through the development, or not the rare riders, but one of the riders that went through the development team to go on to the World Tour team. Because there are riders that go on from the Sunweb development team onto other teams, um, or that go from the Yumbo Visma development team onto other teams than Yumbo Visma and stuff like that. But he's been on in the Sunweb program for three years. My favorite thing about this whole situation was the frantic rumor mill and all of the questions that came in, in like the three days between DSM's announcement and then UAE's announcement. It was pretty, that was pretty fascinating. It's proof of how big of an Amy is already, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, normally when, if a, if a, if a rider, a 22 year old rider was released, we'd be like, eh. And, you know, but this like kicked off the rumor mill for the entire cycling media complex. I mean, there were rumors about, I think it was, um, 
was it Raymond Kirchhoff's uh, Belgian journal who who reported in it? There's a line in a column that he wrote right after the Tour de France, saying that team managers were already telling him that that Hershey was being shopped around. So Hershey was being shopped around at or shortly after the Tour de France, which means that team DSM, formerly Sunweb, they they either already knew they couldn't afford to hang on to him or didn't want to hang on to him whatever the whatever the rationale was that kicked off even even sort of in the midst of him having this this revelation of a tour de france this this sort of you know he was among the top what five names in that entire tour de france and sort of like how how often we were talking about him how much how much time he was spending off the front stages he was winning etc etc so interesting to me that that yeah that sunweb would already at that point want to potentially move him on i mean we still don't really know what the what the cause of this is other than my assumption is that their their budgets can't necessarily keep up with uh keep up with riders as they as they grow basically as their as their salary demands grow and we know that hershey's salary demands would have grown (laughs) a huge amount this fall um but there's got to be more to it than that because you know these teams they they generally can find a way to hang on to riders and riders will often have a bit of sort of loyalty to the team that they came up with as well which means that they would maybe take slightly less money to stay where they are uh there's 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 a cultural thing going on in that team that that is a, a difficult to fully parse i think based on the language that was in the press release that we read in last week's pod um i mean it didn't sound like a particularly warm and fuzzy farewell, Mark will miss you sort of press release. And that certainly suggested to me that there was a fair bit of bitterness involved here. And my guess is, you know, like you said, I mean, I, I don't, I, we never got any sense that there was any bad blood within the team and Mark. Um, but I mean, for sure, if they had spent all this time developing him as a rider and then a team like UAE comes in with presumably a big, bucket full of money then yeah i mean loyalty only goes so far right so there have been a bunch of different reports about the the sort of background workings of what was going on here so we'll you know we'll probably we'll never know the the full story uh most of it does seem to be money focused um but it's really i mean it's important i think keep in mind that this what with this team how often this happens and how many big names uh that this has happened with um this is the team that just seemingly constantly like once a year almost uh, maybe, maybe more i'm just thinking like on average it's like at least once a year for the past like decade or so five or like, six different names in the yeah. last yeah yeah the big big names who've just left middle of a contract um left after they've been you know developed by the team tom dumoulin uh you've got john degenkolb you've got michael matthews all of a sudden you've got uh, well, Marcel Kittle retired, uh, I guess, not long after he left the team, but he left the team. Uh, there, there have been just so many talented riders who have left this team, and it's you, you can't ignore it. And, and even if money's a part of it, the team clearly doesn't feel all that concerned about losing big name riders that they've developed, uh, because a lot of their like some of the, some of the reports we've seen in the last few days have suggested that this was a mutual decision. The team was okay with it. The team was. Fine I mean, if they're chopping them around, yeah. if they're chopping them around at the Tour de France, and obviously they were okay with it. Uh, right. But again, was that because was that because there was already a personality conflict, or was it because they just knew that they couldn't afford him, right? Which yeah. is also very, very possible. Uh, I mean, if this was a money thing, so his his 
his agent, his representative is, is Fabian Cancellara. They're both Swiss, obviously, the, the, that Swiss connection there. Uh, and yeah, if, 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 if Fabian was trying to get as much money as possible for him as soon as possible, then not too surprising that UA, uh, that, that, that uh, DSM would have known that he was going to be too expensive. I mean, he's, he's, he's a million plus rider automatically now, right? 22 years old, done what he's done. He's, he's on a million plus easily. Uh, I think this sort of, to, to move away from, from Hershey himself, unless Shadi, did you have something you wanted to? No, all I was going to say is what we've got to remember is that cycling's a short career, no matter how you look at it. And how a successful career can be even shorter like you could have three four years at being top of the game so you've got to earn your money while you can and no matter yeah you like you say a few riders will be loyal to a team but without a shadow of a doubt there'll be uh, people behind them whether it's agents family uh, people who know better than them because they've been through the sport themselves saying don't be loyal take the cash while you can because at the end of the day, it could end at any moment. Yeah, and, and even, a, even a long career is, what, 15, 15, maybe close to 20 years, right? I mean, you, know, you talk about the, the riders that have set records for most Tours de France and things like that, and it's, it's 17, 18 Tours de France, and that's really the upper limit, uh, which is a really long time, but it's not an entire career, right? It's still, you're still done done with your professional life at what 35 ish unless you're alejandro valverde and then you just keep going forever but the, the next the next sort of topic that this brings up for me is do we need to start talking about uae as as sort of another super team right i mean they're picking up lots of talent <laughs> they won the tour de france this year they arguably have the absolute best young rising gc talent already they pick up hershey they now have one of, if not the best, young rising one-day talents. Is this now a team that we need to lump in with Ineos and Jumbo Visma? There's, there's two things. First of all, I think the answer is yes. I think they are. While they don't, I don't think they have necessarily the, the domestic and support squad yet to really rival those teams. They've already showed that they have the young talent at the very top end. That it doesn't really matter. I mean, we spent all of last year's Tour de France talking about Ineos versus Jumbo Visma. And UAE team members won the Tour de France. So they clearly had enough to win the Tour de France. And they've got other talents besides Pogacar and Hershey. They've got they've got a lot of young, good talent. I mean, they've got Brandon McNulty, for instance. They've got a they've got a bunch of strong riders. And the other thing is I think it's they did lose the Fabio Aru. Fabio Aru being gone, I think, was a big part of this. Uh true. <laughs> th- this is this is a team that used to have the the salaries of Fabio Aru and Dan Martin on their rosters. And it's a team that I think made a bet on those riders that just didn't work out. It took a little while for those bets to get off their balance sheet. And as soon as the bets are off the balance sheet, they go out and pick up a guy who finished third at, at Worlds, second at Liège, and won flesh last year, not to mention his Tour de France. So they clearly had some open cash. They had some money that they could spend, and they very quickly spent it. Uh, and so you, it's hard to fault Hershey for, for jumping on that train. Also, he gets to get vaccinated before the entire peloton uh, because true. UAT members has vaccinated their riders already. So lots of reasons to join this team. <laughs> something true. that something that I think is really interesting about about UAE team Emirates also is that they sign all these young guys for 3 years, which is something that if anyone's ever listened to the Stanley Street Social podcast, they talk a lot about how new signings to the World Tour, it's 
you have to sign for two years. They talk a lot about how that should be increased to three years because when you jump into the world tour from racing U23 or racing on a Conti team or, or stuff like that, the adjustment period is really, really tough. And some people can adapt really quickly to the world tour. Some people struggle a little bit more, but having one year of struggle and then one year where you're kind of getting the hang of it and then you're con, but it's also a contract year is not a good way to go about developing riders where if you throw on one more year, then you have like a year of kind of figuring out how to do it, especially for riders who aren't from Europe. They have one year where they can kind of move to Europe, figure out how everything works. Even if you live in Europe, kind of like figure out the way that a world tour team functions. You have a second year to really go, go for it, kind of figure out what kind of rider you're going to be, figure out a lot more about yourself, especially for the young guys. And a third year that can be a contract year because a contract year is incredibly stressful, no matter what kind of rider you are, no matter what year in racing you are. So the fact that these, they always sign these young guys for three years is something that I personally think that puts them kind of a step above the rest in terms of picking up these guys and making a, a really, really good team out of these young guys. Contrast that with, with uh, DSM, where every year is a contract year, apparently. I mean, that's how it seems, uh, even if your contract is for three years. Uh, <laughs> but Abby, to that point, you pointed out uh, they signed Juan Ayuso, who's uh, Spain's back-to-back junior national champion. Uh, you, you pointed this out to me the other day for, was it five years? Five years. They signed this kid for five years, and I was like, oh, man, he must have won Junior Worlds, like, multiple yeah. times. I was looking at his pro cycling stats. He's got three races on there, and he's only got two years of racing on there. Like, he raced, like, four races in 2019, and then he won both the men's junior national titles in 2020, which... Granted, there was no men's junior racing in 2020, but they picked this guy up this year. They signed him on, or they announced his signing on like January 8th, I think. And it's a five-year deal for this 18-year-old kid. Hmm. They yeah, must they, have, they must have some, some serious power numbers or something like that. I mean, you know, there's lots of different ways to, to, to sign a rider, right? That's definitely one of them. What we've got to remember about the UAE team is that basically it's... They've got the uh, the skeleton of Lamprey hanging about in the Lamprey team, which was there for 24, 25 seasons. So the, the backroom staff, the people that run the show, know what they're doing. They've been there. They've done it before. So now they've got the money to, yeah, go up against the, the Ineoses of the world. They've got the expertise. They'll have, they've got the money there. And they've they've had world beaters before. Cameron's in uh, Simone winning the Giro, world champions, um Fondrius riding for them for them twenty four years, so they've proved that yeah they've got proof from previous history that they the staff know how to handle the best of the best. So to put that together with uh, big chunks of cash, you're going to be a, a yeah you're going to be a force to reckon with. Yeah, this is I was going to say the first, this is the first time that they've been sort of like top tier money in addition to having all that longevity within the sport, which longevity within this particular sport is both a positive and a negative, uh, depending on <laughs> which way you look at it, if you ran a team through the 90s and early 2000s. But uh, 
we'll leave that for another day. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to just like really briefly return to the three-year thing. I, I do think that that is super important. I mean, I think a perfect example is our own young American hero, Sepp Kuss, right? Uh, who had like a really, really terrible first year, 2018. Had a kind of okay decent 2019 uh and then had obviously an absolutely astounding 2020 and he's still a very young rider and that that progression is not necessarily all physical i don't think it's a lot of it is just figuring out you know i I remember speaking with him after that first year in 2018 and he just had a really 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 rough time in europe and i think a lot of riders particularly when they're not already in europe when they're not from europe have that same reaction when they first get over just the 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 need to perform at the very highest level when you are not sort of comfortable grocery shopping things like that like (laughs) the the very basics uh you can't get your internet to work you can't like well all the millions of things that that can go wrong when you move to a new country and you don't speak the language etc etc uh it is massively important and i i I agree i think i think more three-year contracts for young riders would be a good thing and as dsm sunweb has shown you can always get rid of them if you want to, right? A three-year contract doesn't have to be a three-year contract. Uh, if if the if it's mutual, if they want to go and you want to get rid of them, you can still get rid of them, and you can probably potentially even make some money off of it, right? That uh, doesn't happen as much in cycling as in other sports. The sort of like the the transfer fee, but. It does happen sometimes. I mean, you know, some of the riders from Adrone Giacatoli, Gianni Savio's team, that have gone to Ineos over the last couple of years, not least even Sosa and Egram Bernal, though they came with 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 big paychecks for Savio and for Androni. Uh, and so there is there's there's money to be made in finding young talent and then hawking it to the highest bidder. Uh, again, doesn't happen super often in cycling, but is something that happens on occasion. Anyway, moving on from Hershey and UAE. These will be recurring topics, I am sure, throughout the rest of the year. I've got a bunch of other things on my on my news list here. Uh, Dane, next up here, Bahrain and Trek GC rider plans. What's going on over there? Yeah, uh, it's about the time of the year where people start doing their off-season interviews and talking to their press officers and getting press releases out about what they're going to be doing this year. Uh, Bahrain and Trek both have kind of published the, the, the big plans for their big-name GC riders, uh, which... It's pretty interesting. Mika Landa is going to ride both the Giro and the Tour. That's one of the big things coming out of this, uh, which I'm a little bummed by. I kind of want to see him go all in for the Tour again. I like to see him at the Tour, focus on the Tour. I feel like if you're going to do the Giro and the Tour, you're probably not going to be at 100% of the Tour. Uh, but who knows? Maybe that means he'll be up there in the uh, in the GC battle at Giro. Um, uh, he'll be joined by Peo Bilbao at the Giro. He was fifth uh, this past year, and uh, Bill Bell's also going to ride the tour. Uh, Wetpool's going to be doing uh, the tour. It's going to focus on the tour. Uh, so that's the Bahrain sort of GC picture. And then, yeah, a lot of Giro ambitions over at Trek Segafredo as well. Uh, we just missed an opportunity to make a Bahrain victorious joke. Oh, yeah. What are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. That's a good point because they're not even called Bahrain McLaren anymore. We should have like some kind of jar. Every time we can make like a new Bahrain victorious joke, we mm. put a dollar in it and it all goes to an end of the year kegger. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we'll just we'll create a Venmo account. Everyone's got a Venmo into <laughs> into an account. Uh, whenever you make a terrible Bahrain victorious joke, something along the lines of, well, if you send. Mikael Landa to both the Giro and the Tour de France. It's going to be Bahrain ninth place. 
Bahrain Podiumus, maybe. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're welcome, listeners, for that zinger right there. What's what's next on the list here? Sorry, I interrupted your your trick. Yeah, that, that's okay. That, that was an important topic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we get Trek Segafredo, Vincenzo Nibali, unsurprisingly, going to focus on the Giro d'Italia. Uh, it's a race he's won before, twice actually. Uh, he's also going to or planning to race the Tour de France. Uh, Malama will be riding the Giro as well. He's planning to ride the Giro as well, uh, as well as the Tour. So another kind of Giro Tour double. I, I don't like calling it that unless you're actually like a, a big, you know, contender to win both of them. Because then people will be like, oh my God, is, is Balcomolema going for the Giro Tour double? Well, he's going to race both races. Uh, yeah. I think I think Balcomolema is going for the Giro Tour double. I mean, it'd be sweet. I like Balcomolema. He's great. He's a great interview. Uh, he's a good, good guy. So that'd be awesome if that happened. How uh, amazing would that be? <laughs> I would love it. No, I'd be a big fan of that. Uh, Giulio Giacone, who is one of Trek Segafredo's, you know, very promising uh, GC riders, also going to target the Giro d'Italia. So that is, uh, that's pretty interesting. And then he's going to race the Vuelta España. So he loves a lot the of Giro. love for the Palmer's Giro. jersey at the Giro. Yeah. We'll, we'll keep posted on uh, as more teams kind of roll out their plans. It'll, some teams will probably do that pretty soon, and then we'll have others that won't tell us until you know June who's going to be going to the Tour de France. So, is Tom's going for the Giro Tour double? Tom's is going for the triple threat. He's going to go Vuelta Giro Tour. Yeah, so sweet. That'd be sweet. Big ambitions for him for for twenty twenty one. But he didn't win the Vuelta, so he can't go for the triple threat yet. He's got to win the first one. Yeah, you set them in the order of Vuelta Giro Tour, Abby. So yeah, no, he's he's he, sorry, he's planning to win all three this year. Okay, good. Yeah, not perfect. in any particular order. <laughs> he can do it. I believe in him. <laughs> he just needs a really, really long breakaway. Like he needs like an hour. He needs to get like an hour in stage three. Thomas Hent was like third at the Giro way back when after a crazy long breakaway. So it can be done. That's true. Or who is yeah. who is the was it was it um was it Eros Poli who won a Vontu? Who's the giant guy that won a Vontu? Not that Tom's is giant, but things I'm, waiting, I'm saying is, the things Dave's are possible. Gotta know this. Dave, <laughs> Dave is the, an encyclopedia of Hey, Tom's has had the Kingdom Mountains jersey, so let's not discard that. It's Eros Poli. I got it right. <laughs> what year was that? Remind me. Nineteen ninety-four. Yep. So he was in a he was in like the all day breakaway. And hit the base of the climb with like twenty minutes or something like that, and then almost got caught because <laughs> he he's massive. He's like six foot four and like ninety kilos, <laughs> but he won on the top of on two. Amazing, yeah. Tour de France, nineteen ninety four. Go look it up. It's great. Anyway, next to my list here, Wout van Aert. What's going on with Wout? Yeah, just more of the same. Uh... Rumors, rumors about where he's headed next year. Because of course, Wafan, you know, we, we started hearing rumors about his his transfer plans for the upcoming transfer season, like a year in advance. That's how big of a rider he is right now. Uh, there was there were talks, there were there were rumors about any us interest in Wafan Art, which we talked about this on the podcast. How the likelihood was basically that this was Wafan Art's agent trying to up the price for Wafan Art. That's how these things work. That's why these rumors tend to come out because they don't really have anything to lose by by telling people like us that Ineos is is in, uh, they're interested, and then Yumbo reads the rumors and like, oh man, I guess we got to pay Wafanart a little more money. Uh, well, Wafanart apparently in contract talks with 
Jumbo Visma, the team that he currently rides for. Uh, and according to the reports, uh, things are going well. So there seems to be a, a hope that he will be re-signed at that team, which has a lot of money uh, and, and can afford a rider. It, it, he's a very expensive rider, I'm sure, but uh, they probably can afford him. And so they're hoping they'll be able to just re-sign him, and the, the current reports suggest that their chances are pretty good. So that's where we are right now. All right. And what's going on with Kofi, do you Abby? Yeah, so COVID is kind of announced. It was a very, very weird announcement because it first came out on like a COVID fan Twitter. And then a bunch of um, reputable Twitters retweeted it. And then COVID announced actually uh, like an hour or two later that they are planning to put together a women's team for 2022, um, which coincidentally coincides with the theoretical women's tour de France. Um, but yeah, they basically announced, um, that they, they have interest in having a women's team. They didn't say anything about what level it's going to be, uh, if it's going to be UCI or if it's just going to be kind of a development slash club team. So there's no information at all about it, except that Kofidis will have a women's team in 2022. I mean, women's teams are pretty cheap, so I would hope that they kind of sh- shoot for shoot for the moon here. Like a full on women's world tour team is just a couple million bucks. It's the cost of like two expensive male riders. So I would hope that they could that they could pull that off. I mean, Kofidis itself is a pretty large company. Fingers crossed. I'm actually going to pull everybody up here again for pronouncing that wrong because if for anybody that spent any time in France and watched TV in the late night is up to probably about five years ago. It's Kofidis. The advert <laughs> sticks in your head like um <laughs> nothing I can't hear that team name without singing that. Uh really, really briefly, Abby. PFP. Yeah, so um Pauline Fran Prevot has announced that she is it was it was announced before the holidays really that PFP would not be staying with Canyon SRAM for twenty twenty one. And she's she's been with the team for a couple years now, but she pretty much exclusively races on the mountain bike. She doesn't do road anymore. She announced last year that she had no ambitions for the road anymore and she was focusing solely on the Tokyo Olympics mountain bike event and uh so she's taken the step to completely leave Canyon SRAM which is primarily a road team and it has definitely put a lot more focus into their road I mean it's a road team so a lot more focus into their road team and having her on the roster didn't really make a ton of sense in 2020 and so, yeah, going into 2021, she is riding for the Absolute Absalon BMC team. A, I think it's a pretty good, pretty good move for her. So, yeah. I mean, isn't isn't Absalon her partner now? Correct. Yeah, for quite a while, actually. I think. Yeah, for a couple of years now. So, mm-hmm. not super surprising that she now yeah. is just riding for the team that her partner put together. So. Yeah. Challenge yeah. Mallorca is canceled. That's the Let's last go. thing in my news list. Postponed. Yeah. Uh, usually an early season race, it's a race that a lot of times you see big names getting their first start of the year. Series of one-day races, really, in, in uh, Mallorca. And it has been postponed for COVID concerns. Uh, they're hoping to come back in uh, May at the moment. I covered that race once. I went to a SRAM launch, and then I stayed to cover the race. And then the airline that I was supposed to take to get home 
um, ceased to exist while I was on the island. <laughs> oh, no. I remember that year, Kaylee. Was it was it Spanish Air or something like that? I, I can't remember what the airline I was. Don't remember what the airline was, but I remember very distinctly feeling very fortunate that I did not have a flight on the airline. Uh, but yeah, then like the worst thing that I could possibly imagine happened to me, which is that I had to spend like three days just sitting on the coast in Mallorca, uh, eating you know toast with little tomato on it and hanging out because i couldn't (laughs) leave mallorca also there's a snowstorm which freaked everybody out and people were like stopped on the highway and building little snow people on on their the hoods of their cars because they hadn't seen snow in like 40 years or something like that it was a wild trip kelly let me tell you something about being stuck in another country (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know dane you know dane i know you've you've talked a lot about how you got stuck in the uae you couldn't leave your hotel room you had to escape in the dead of night yeah. from the Rona. But, you know, I really think that my Mallorca experience yeah, is right up there. Really it's challenging. It's right up there. It was, it was really challenging. I'm sorry you had yeah, to go through I, that. Yeah. It, like, I got a little sunburn. I, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Man, that's tough. Being a bike journalist. If, if I, you know, if I had to make a recommendation is that if you do want to fly to an island only to have your airline disappear while you're there, Mallorca is a pretty good island to do that. Yeah. I would I would say probably do that instead of uh, the UAE. Instead of That's Abu Dhabi. a good idea. All right, keep that in mind yeah. next time. I, time <laughs> or, or, or like me, when I missed a flight out of Switzerland years and years and years ago, and uh, I was desperately looking for free internet somewhere because this was back in the day when I was working for Cycling News and was still independently owned by Gerard Knapp, and we were on a total shoestring budget. And yeah, I was looking for free internet, and I was looking, and I found it inside of a mall that was a couple doors down from my hotel. And uh, I was working so late, apparently though, that I nearly got locked inside the mall. And luckily, I found out. I found out eventually, thankfully, after walking around for a while, that the mall was attached to a movie theater, and the movie theater was still running late in the evening. And I was able to get out. But otherwise, I nearly spent the evening in a shopping mall. Oh, these sound like really tough experiences, guys. I once got my rental car stuck in a in a like in a parking garage because they clo- turns out they closed the parking garage. Was that in France? This is in, no, this is in Italy. This is in Italy. Uh, okay. They closed Same, the parking I mean. garage at like eight. They're like, no, everyone le- usually leaves by eight. And I was like, well, I didn't. How am I supposed to know that? I just left my car, and so then I had to leave my car there, walk back to the hotel, and then walk back in the morning and get my car out. It was like an hour or something like that but again you know i really getting stuck in Mallorca was really the worst so let's let's we can move on beyond that i win <laughs> for the worst travel experience uh of anyone here i think by far right yeah all votes votes hands up yep. in the air yeah okay, no good. i want to vote on if you could like if you could get stuck if you were covering a bike event and could get stuck anywhere in the world i think that I would want to be stuck in Kona. I would like to cover Kona, the Kona Iron Man, and be stuck there. You can leave me there. I have bad news, Abby. We don't don't cover cover the Kona Iron (laughs) (laughs) That one is unlikely to work out for you (laughs) while working for Cycling Tips. (laughs) I mean, who knows? We're breaching into the the adventure market. We're doing gravel. We are not. We are not expanding into traffic. Just absolute condemnation here for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, we're, and Kaylee's very open to other disciplines of cycling, too. But yeah, no. We're diversified from a content perspective, editorial content perspective, I think more so than almost any other cycling media. Like we talk about almost anything on two wheels, except They have one. two wheels, uh, yeah. But then they also run and swim, which we don't do. 
I'll get Flora Duffy on the podcast, and then everyone who listens to the podcast is going to be converted, and they're going to love triathlon. They're going to be like, we send someone to Kona, and I'll have volunteered years in advance. Seems nope, unlikely. Nope, they're going to they're going to love Flora, not triathlon. That's very, that's very different. Yeah, <laughs> it is hard not to love Flora. <laughs> I'm surprised you're not you're not more into triathlon, Kaylee, with you having the socks over your tights and all that malarkey. They no. just look like that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't like having arm warmers and a vest on, or a gilet, I should say. Uh, I think that's what the, the the exposed shoulder look is not my favorite, and so therefore I've been banned from triathlon for for life. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed. How have we ventured here when we've been talking about Challenge Mallorca? Possibly one of the most underrated races of the year. It's my fault. I took us on a tangent to. To tell everyone about my harrowing experience stuck in my arc for a couple days. On that note, speaking of harrowing experiences, that's a terrible segue. There's, there's no harrowing experience coming. Uh, James, what are we talking about on today's Nerd Alert? Nerd Alert. 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 Well, I can't remember exactly how we came upon this subject, but uh, a, a while ago, Kelly, I think you brought up the topic of PFAS, this class of chemicals. It's- I think I just mentioned it because I have a friend who's involved in the cleanup of it, and she was telling me how terrible it is. And then I was like, wait, we have these in bicycling, and we should yeah, talk about so, it. All right. So I was right. They are uh, PFAS, P-F-A-S, uh, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, otherwise commonly referred to as forever chemicals. Um, they're really common in a lot of industrial applications, um, largely because they are, they have exceptional, uh, hydrophobic and oleophobic properties. So like, you know, they, they basically water and oil just don't stick to them. So they're used in like, you know, stain resistant, uh, stain resistant carpets and, you know, the, the longer, longer chain forms of them are, you know, it's Teflon. Um, so it's used in a lot of like, you know, outerwear, that sort of thing. And it's also used in a lot of bicycle lubricants. Uh, but we do have to have a little caveat with that because Teflon is not technically a PFAS chemical. Uh, PFAS is used in the processing of Teflon, but Teflon itself uh, is not one of those substances that will slowly kill you. Right. In fact, it's used in like surgical. It's used in medical devices and, and stuff like, like that. Medical yeah. Devices and, yeah. yeah. But but the processing of Teflon is pretty pretty ugly, um, and it uses a lot of these PFAS chemicals. So. Uh, yeah, so we were you brought this up a while ago uh, because this is something that is uh, it does touch upon the cycling industry because again it is it is something that is linked to a lot of uh, bicycle lubricants, particularly ones that use Teflon, and uh, <clears throat> and we promised in the I think it was just the previous episode actually um, that we would dig into this a little bit further, and as it turns out, one of our listeners who I think is a Bella Club member, uh, his wife is actually the toxics policy advisor for the Sierra Club. And prior to that, had a 15-year uh, tenure at the Environmental Working Group. Her name is Sonia Lunder. And she actually it was also here in Boulder. And I got her on the phone the other day to have a little discussion on PFAS. So we should take a listen to that. Sonia, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, before we get into our discussion, I first want to give our listeners a little bit of background as far as 
why we're having you on the podcast today and, and why you are qualified to be talking to us about this. And I'm actually very much looking forward to this conversation. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, thank you for having me. I am Sonia Lunder. I'm the Senior Toxics Policy Advisor at the Sierra Club. And I work on um, environmental regulations related to toxic chemicals as they impact people, their health, and the environment. I've been campaigning and studying PFAS for several years, uh, fluorochemicals, and I'm a biker and uh, thinking about, and a skier, and I think about how these chemicals are used in um, the the products that I buy and use at home as well. Cool. And conveniently, you are actually located here in Boulder, and yet we are still talking digitally because, well... That's kind of just how things are now. In 2020, we will be uh, we'll be talking here online instead of biking or walking out in the open space. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, uh, let's go ahead and dive into this. So, uh, again, we had we had brought up the topic of uh, these PFAS chemicals uh, several episodes ago, and we promised our listeners that we would dive into this a little bit deeper, and that is what we are going to do today. Um, so maybe we can start at the beginning, I guess, and give people a little bit of a primer on what these PFAS chemicals are and why we're talking about them today. Yeah, PFAS are a family of synthetic chemicals that are pretty modern, um, first developed for uh, Teflon pans and widely marketed as nonstick chemicals. They're used in Gore-Tex and rain gear to make uh, those you know, high-performance raincoats that don't make you sticky and clammy inside. But they're a really diverse family of chemicals that are added to waxes and um, car, car waxes and floor waxes and also um, put on carpeting so that you're, you know, stain-free carpeting. Um, they're, they're very useful family of chemicals, but over the past several decades, we've realized that some of the qualities that make them very um, hydrophobic or um, waterproof and greaseproof also mean that they persist for a very long time in the environment. And I guess that is the issue that we're talking about, right? Because I guess these are these are referred to sort of forever materials, I think, basically, right? Yeah. And that idea of forever itself isn't always a problem. You know, you want your marriage to last forever or your bike chain to be uh, lubed forever. But it's teamed with the fact that another group of, um, of inquiry or studies find that they're also really highly toxic to people and wildlife at incredibly low doses. So there is a challenge in controlling or using appropriately a family of chemicals that have some useful qualities, but also contribute to a burden of pollution in the environment um, that is now making it uh, likely to be found that PFAS chemicals contaminate drinking water for millions of people in the U.S. and that PFAS chemicals can also be measured in polar bears or in rain um, and in the food we eat. Uh, it's very hard to contain them once they're put into a product as specific as a bike grease or a carpeting um, to contain them in exactly those places and that they end up being very mobile and being found all over the planet. I mean, I think, I feel like people who you know, are even just kind of like casually uh, up to date on things in the news and, you know, environmental issues and that sort of thing. I, I feel like the, the, I, the concept of chemical pollution is very familiar to a lot of people. Um, I feel like it's almost unfortunately to the degree where people have grown kind of numb to it. Um, but as far as you know, sort of the the grand spectrum of toxic chemicals, I and mean, where does PFAS lie on all that? I mean, how bad are we talking here? Well, 
I actually find that it's an incredibly problematic group of chemicals, mostly because it impacts so many different parts of our body. Um, they're bad for your kidney, they're bad for our immune system, they can inhibit um, brain development and impact uh, pregnancy. Also because the chemicals are found in almost everybody in the United States or nationally, as I mentioned earlier, they're detected in polar bears and top predators. And because they are used in so many applications, it's not like we can make one single rule and ban them in a specific product and kind of address the pollution issue. Both we're dealing with the decades of pollution that's been released into the environment, but then also people making these questions about, do I want my, um, you know, the rug in my kid's room to be uh, stain proof, you know, that might be useful. And how bad could that possibly be? You know, is this just a teeny fragment of an overall, um, you know, pollution burden? And, and, and is it worth it? If I'm, if I'm looking at two bike cha chain lubes on the shelf, you know, how much of a problem is this one thing that I'm thinking about buying or avoiding? I mean, I guess that is the question, of course, that that people are always asking about when when this sort of topic comes up. You know, it's like you know, uh, you have kids. I ha I have a, a seven year old. You know, you mentioned the thing with you know these sorts of chemicals being used in stain resistant carpeting, for example. You know, I I think of my kid sort of you know since she was a baby, just kind of like crawling around. I mean, <laughs> I mean for for better or worse. I mean, my carpets are definitely not stain resistant. I'm quite sure of that. <laughs> but um. You know, I, I think about my my kid crawling around on this stuff and playing on this, and um, you know, it, I guess in the context of what we're talking about today, um, there are a lot of bike lubricants, uh, you know, greases and oils that have all sorts of different additives in them. Um, yeah, you know, how much exposure do you really have to have to have an impact on your health that you're describing? Um, yeah, it's a question I wrestle with every day as well. Um, I think that the problem is that we think about this one very limited period of time where we might be applying the bike grease, um, you know, dripping it on, wiping it off. But as a campaigner and activist and environmental scientist, I think about the people who produce the chemicals, the, the pollution that's happening around the factories where those chemicals are produced. I think about the fact that there are these thousands of everyday um, products in our household that have PFAS chemicals in them and that they're being washed down storm drains or what being washed into our wastewater system and recirculating into the environment. So um, it's hard to look at any one product and, and necessarily say, is it worth it? But when we're thinking about the life cycle and the fact that, you know, all the PTFE in that one container of bike lube will be in the environment basically forever. There's no real known way that these are broken down or detoxified by just sunlight or weathering or um, heat and cold. Uh, Europe has really come out with a framework and a, a policy commitment to end all non-essential uses of PFAS chemicals. And I think when we have to evaluate um, products like that under the framework of are they essential? Is there a another possible way that we can achieve the same performance or these same qualities through different chemistry. Uh, things like dental floss and um, carpeting and bike grease aren't essential and there's easy ways that we can push industry um, to innovate and to find, uh, to find safer chemistries that will serve the same purposes. Well, I guess seeing as how we're talking about this in a bike context, you know, one of the items that, uh, one of the additives that has come up quite a bit uh, for for oils and greases that uh, there seems to be a little bit of debate actually as to whether or not this is a 
PFAS chemical, whether it falls into that class, is you know Teflon additives in in greases and oils. I mean, it's very common to find that stuff in a lot of bicycle products. Um, you know, in, in addition to all sorts of other additives, you know, some of which are not always disclosed. Um, you know, for various you know industrial secret sort of things. Um, but for for these PFAS, you know, for this PFAS class of chemicals, do you have examples of 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 PFAS chemicals that are in that that can be found in common bike lubricants? I mean, is is Teflon considered a PFAS chemical? So that's a great question. And I think you appropriately note that there's a lot of secrecy or sometimes not very specific information about the chemistries that are um, in these types of products or anything else. You know, when do you buy a rug that tells you exactly what the strain stain treatment process was. So from the consumer end, it can be really hard to sort out. I do have a, a very old TriFlow bottle here um, that my kids dug up from our garage that says it's made with PTFE. And PTFE technically is a polymer, which is a chain of fluorinated chemicals that is um, is different than some of the PFAS pollution that I'm talking about that accumulates in polar bears or is found um, in the snow around the starting gates of a Nordic ski race or in the blood of Nordic ski waxers. Um, it is a long chain of chemicals, but of course, um, the PFAS that I'm talking about are used to make PTFE. And when PTFE is heated, um, can off-gas and create those chemical fragments, which are PFAS, which are the things that have been linked to immune system problems, cancers, kidney damage, thyroid problems, and this whole host of human health problems. So um, PTFE is a plastic. It could be used in an Apple watch band or, you know, there's a lot of ways you might encounter the PTFE plastic. And it itself as an intact plastic may be a very low um, risk of being taken up into your lungs or into your bloodstream and causing those type of problems. But that's where um, I don't have the information right at my fingertips sitting here, you know, um, in my office about the, the the use of PFAS completely in the, in the bike chain lube industry. Um, but I do know that the life cycle of this PTFE plastic is harmful, um, both in the places where the plastic are made when it's heated um, you know, the idea of exposures to someone working in a bike shop that might be much more intense and much more frequent than us recreational weekend cyclists. Um, so there are some unanswered questions there about exactly what it means or what kind of exposure you might have applying a PTFE um, bike product. And if there are other products on the market that might be more directly harmful. I think the most um, useful example from the recreation industry is the use of uh, fluorinated ski waxes in the Nordic industry. But again, there's some big differences there where the waxes are heated. There's a lot of inhalation risk. We know that these chemicals cross through the lungs and get into the bloodstream. And we know that studying ski waxers, professional ski waxers, um, that they have higher concentrations of PFAS chemicals in their blood. So, um, yeah, there may be some nuances that make biking and bike-specific uses a little different, but we do know that PTFE polymer um, is different, but still has some of those same exposure concerns through its life cycle. Um, right, because I mean, PTFE. I mean, it is used. It's, you know, it's. In, it, I guess one of the reasons why it's used in things like medical devices is because it's an inert material, um, and you know. It's, Again, one of the reasons why it's used in all these other materials that you talk about is because, you know, again, you said it, it's super hydrophobic. It doesn't absorb water. 
Um, and it, you know, it's really good for resisting oils, that sort of thing. But I guess there is a very much a difference. And we talk about it being a, you know, a, a, a polymer. And basically there's a whole bunch of different ways to look at a polymer and, and the, the characteristics of a polymer change dramatically based on how long those hydrocarbon chains are, right? Yeah. And so I was looking online at some of these homemade do-it-yourself recipes that call for buying um, PTFE in bulk. And when I look at the material data information, it looks like it's a one microm right, micron particle size. So that's more of a, like a micro particle. Um, we do see PTFE used this way in cosmetics that are used, you know, um, you know, to, to scour your skin. I'm totally blanking on that. What's that? Like a facial scrub. Yeah. Um, PTFE particles used in cosmetics could be imparting that same tiny micro particle um, quality that, that scrubs, you know, the dead skin off your face or something. Um, but yeah, I think you know PTFE is that is also that layer on a Teflon pan that keeps your eggs from sticking. You know when you fry them in the morning. However, at high heat or um, you know under other stresses, they do break down and they off-gas the PFAS chemicals, which are yeah those individual fragments that make the polymer that can have the okay. harmful effects. Um, I mean, so you know bicycle lubricants and you know chain chain lubes and and just general purpose grease that sort of thing i mean in the bike world we don't we don't typically heat that stuff up although there is now a lot of discussion with you know immersing your 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 chains in the sort of like this paraffin wax uh, which oftentimes does have teflon in it and to be honest i just did this last night as a matter of fact um so it does sound like there is potentially some exposure that we need to be talking about. So what what is exa what exactly does this stuff do if you have too much of it in your system? Yeah, um, I wouldn't put my hands in a palm, uh, you know, a paraffin wax with PTFE that's heated. I wouldn't really want to inhale it. I wouldn't want that in my garage in terms of just that residue kind of sticking to things in the walls. I'm sorry, I said the same thing to a friend whose kids are. Um, waxing, you know, Nordic skis at home. Uh, you know, everyone has some amount of PFAS chemicals in their body. Um, it's in, it's contaminated the food we eat. It's contaminated drinking water for, for millions of people in the United States alone. Um, the chemicals in general are, are really hard to avoid completely, but we can take these steps we know to limit our exposure. Um, we'd expect to, that to be taken up by the skin. I'm hoping you're wearing gloves uh, when you do I that. I am, actually. Good, good. Um, and that's why, you know, Nordic ski, the Nordic ski industry is moving out of fluorinated waxes um, and voluntarily um, teams and um, com competitors are, are, are pledging not to use them. Um, there they impart a huge performance advantage. So it's this, you know, it's a much more challenging, I, I think, than the bike industry where we have a variety of non-fluorinated products that can serve the same purpose, have similar durability. I know we have debates over what the best bike lube is at the table, dinner table at my household, but there's clearly <laughs> at least half of, half of the family members um, who are very comfortable using non-fluorinated waxes. This isn't my specialty. <laughs> but yeah, they, well, they accumulate in the body. They bind to the blood, um, harmful to your internal organs like your kidneys and liver. Um, in high exposures are linked to kidney cancer, testicular cancer, potentially other kinds of cancers, harmful during pregnancy. Um, there's even a commentary um, 
about how they make the immune system suppressed. And so people with high levels of PFAS in their body from eating contaminated foods or drinking a lot of PFAS in their contaminated water have um, less response when they get vaccines. Their immune system can't mount that defense and create antibodies as efficiently. And so um, concerns that you both get more communicable illnesses and may be less protected by vaccination. So some pretty serious things um, we do think about and, and measure that mostly in the really highly exposed populations. Um, but I think this is where the environmental laws are really weak. No one's, there's no division of consumer products that's saying, did we make that bike wax in the best possible way? We go from emergency to emergency banning individual chemicals once we've reached a pretty high level of proof that they're harmful. So that's where I guess I'm um, asking people to bring this into their awareness and make uh, purchases in the face of government inaction or a very slow response from the government um, to try to limit the, the purchasing and use of toxic and concerning chemicals. Uh, certain PFAS are part of a global um, ban on persistent pollutants, the Stockholm Convention, that the US hasn't signed for some um, bureaucratic and political reasons. And those, you know, PTFE is often made with harmful chemicals. So in some meta way, we're contributing to pollution in the environment. Now, I do note I have the TriFlow bottle um, here on my desk that my kids discovered and brought up to me before this interview. And, um, you know, I think when you own something, then you think, okay, am I creating more waste uh, by throwing it away? But in general, um, I'd say among the spectrum of concerns, this is just one of these places where our purchasing habits can help reduce harm um, and help protect people who may have less access to making those decisions or much more intense exposure in a manufacturing environment or um, or in a bike shop or any other way where you have fewer choices and much more um, contact with the chemicals. Well, that's actually what I wanted to finish with today. Uh, as far as, you know, I, I doubt that anyone listening to this podcast right now is in a position to make some sort of, you know, grand sweeping you know, global or national or even state level changes as far as what happens with this stuff. But if people want to make individual decisions as far as even just limiting their own exposure to this stuff from, you know, in a bike context, um, what do you recommend that they do? And again, you know, we touched on earlier the fact that, you know, a lot of these products have basically secret chemistries and ingredients that you may or may not know about. But is there anything that people should be looking for as far as things that they should should potentially avoid when they're going to buy a new chain lube or grease or something like that. I'm going to push back a little bit on your statement that people who are listening to this podcast don't necessarily have that authority because I would point to the Nordic ski industry as a place where recognizing um, the need for harmonization and leveling the playing field and also the need for avoiding harmful chemicals. There's been a lot of voluntary advocacy and pledging and commitments that have been made by clubs and races and teams to avoid a chemistry that actually, as I mentioned before, gives them a real performance advantage. Um, so I'd say that um, we all have to participate. You know, we've learned over the last four years that you can't wait for the government to come in and make good decisions and protect us. Um, and, you know, while the issue may be less intense in the bike industry, there are places where you can decide not to stock this in your shop or, um, you know, to find alternatives. So I'd avoid products that say PTFE on the label. And I do also um, acknowledge 
a huge problem with transparency and disclosure. That doesn't mean that you'll be avoiding all PTFE chemistry. Um, and it doesn't mean that the alternatives are necessarily studied and proven to be safer. So we, we tiptoe into this consumer environment knowing that often um, we don't have full information and even the most dogged and, and focused um, purchaser, um, someone stocking a bike store um, or someone um, staffing a team, you know, maybe pouring more time and intentionality into these decisions and still not really um, have all the information they need to make a good choice. But when something like this pops up, clearly when there are alternatives that are the same price and equally readily available, it really feels like uh, a common sense and fairly straightforward thing for people to do. Um, in regards to the secret chemistry thing, um, I mean, I did reach out to at least one company that, that I know of, uh, it's, it's a company called Squirt. I mean, they make a, a very popular wax-based chain lube. Um, and, and I reached out to, to them. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I have um, Squirt here in front of me, too. At least two of the four uh, of us are big Squirt devotees. Yeah. Well, so so I, I contacted the person who runs the company, and I asked him specifically, you know, does this stuff contain any PFAS chemicals in it? And, I mean, I already know that it does not contain Teflon. And he wrote back and he said it's, you know, he, he said supposedly it does not contain any PFAS chemicals. You know, it's you know, it's basically just wax in an, in a water emulsion, and you know he said it, it it is technically biodegradable, I guess. But I guess what I'm wondering is, if someone were curious about it and wanted to make an informed decision, if someone contacted a company to ask if their product contains these types of materials, are they at all legally obligated to tell you if that if that product has those materials in it? No, uh, there's protection for confidential business information to the highest levels of um, of government, it's meaning EPA um, can ban, you know, a particular fluorochemical and approve an alternative and doesn't even make the chemical um, formula public. And other people, even within the federal government, can't find out what that chemistry is. So um, for other chemicals that I've campaigned on, flame retardants, um, one gets phased out of the market, there's an agreement to fast track an alternative and and environmental chemists are out there trying to use their detective powers to figure out even what's in it. So um, trade secrecy and chemical um, identities are highly protected um, in our current laws and policies. Um, and there are a lot of examples of greenwashing. Um, you know, I was at North Face and they have a label on jackets that are free of PFAS of environmental concern, but they don't even list which, you know, so they, they're clearly free of some of the really old bad chemistry. Um, I would assume using newer, slightly different PFAS chemicals, but no real transparency about what even falls into that category of environmental concern. So there's a lot of greenwashing and kind of mislabeling. Um, hopefully when someone tells you, um, I don't use fluorochemistry, you know, there have been some companies that, you know, are very transparent and very clear. Um, you know, Patagonia has on their website, you know, we're not completely out of PFAS chemicals. We hope to be soon, you know, for the outdoor industry. So, I, you know, there's varying levels of disclosure and honesty and transparency out there. Um, and sometimes it's about knowing what, chemi what, what to ask for. We're free of PTFE, but, you know, who knows? Uh, a more broad question might be, are you using any fluorochemicals? Um, which would catch things other than PTFE that could have similar performance qualities um, and durability qualities that would be helpful in a, in a bike loop. Okay. Well, good to know. I mean, I guess, 
you know, even if someone doesn't get a straight answer on that question, I mean, at least now they know what question to ask. So that's somewhere to start. So yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And really in this world of, um, of really weak environmental protections and environmental regulation, I think these kinds of questions from the public are really pushing the market. Um, there's campaigns against McDonald's using PFAS in their burger wrappings and um, big campaigns in the carpeting industry to get people out of using fluorochemicals for stain treatment. And, and we do see, I mean, it's a very slow way to proceed, but we do see responsible companies thinking about that and formulating with environmental health and um, environmental toxicology in mind and, and clearly want to support them and, and send a signal that those are valuable qualities. Well, good. All right. Well, Sonia, I will go ahead and set aside my usual cynical self and cross my fingers and hope for the future. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. That was super informative. Uh, I dare say, I mean, it's certainly possible we may call on you again. So thanks for making yourself available. Sure. And if I see you on the trail, I'll give a wave. It's a little harder these days with masks and, uh, masks and <laughs> indeed, helmets on. Indeed. But yeah, maybe I'll see you in the open space. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Okay. Nice talking with you. Bye. Yeah, so the, the the question after listening to all this, I mean, there, there's really no, there really doesn't seem to be any debate that these PFAS chemicals are bad. Um, and the question is, you know, exactly how bad are they? You know, where do you want to draw the line as far as what you do about it? And, um, you know, and I had said during, I had said to Sonia during this interview, it's like, you know, doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot that individual people can do as far as, you know, enacting huge, you know, industry-wide changes and that sort of thing. And she did, and she did push back and challenge me, rightfully so, in saying that, you know, you can make individual decisions as far as not including this stuff in your, you know, daily purchases and uses and stuff like that. But you can also lobby and make phone calls and send emails to companies that use this stuff and, you know, say like, you know, hey, what are you doing with this stuff? You know, what are you doing to, to, you know, enact or change your policies or to say like, you know, I'm not going to use this stuff anymore. Um, and I did a little, little bit of digging around and certainly, I mean, like, again, I mean, even though Teflon is not technically a PFAS chemical because it's sort of a, a bigger inert version of, you know, sort of one of those PFAS chemicals that's used to process, process this stuff, but because there is so much PFAS involved in processing it, Teflon is still considered kind of dirty. Um, so one thing you could do if you are concerned about it is, I mean, I'm not saying that you should go through your stockpiles and you know throw away everything that has Teflon in it because that's not really going to do you any good. Um, but if you are concerned about it, I mean, you may want to consider purchasing things that just don't have Teflon in it as far as your lubricants go. And you know, again, I did a little bit of looking around. Um, uh, you know, Squirt, for example, is one one lubricant that comes in a bottle that does not have Teflon in it. And I confirmed with their their head, uh, the head of the company, that it does not contain Teflon or any other PFAS chemicals. Um, I'm waiting to hear back from Josh Portner actually, because their, uh, their new wax lubricants, both the immersion wax and the drip bottle wax, uh, appears to be just wax and, uh, uh, tungsten disulfide, which is not a PFAS chemical and does not seem to, uh, and those lubricants do not seem to include Teflon. Um, molten speed wax was probably the, the company that really popularized the immersion wax set up for chains. Uh, that one, unfortunately, does contain Teflon, um, but there are alternatives. So the question is, you know, can you get those levels of low friction performance out of these lubricants without using uh, without using substances that involve PFAS in the processing? And it seems like there are some alternatives. There we go. 
good to know. Thanks for doing the research, James. We 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 did we brought this up last time, having not really done the research. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's good to have an actual expert on the podcast telling us what we should and shouldn't do because we do know this stuff is bad and avoiding it i think is probably a good thing where you can you know if you're trying to win the tour de france uh the teflon in your chain wax is probably not going to end the world but if you're just an everyday rider avoiding stuff like teflon lubricants is is not really going to be any in any way detrimental to your cycling so i'm going to do it for sure. I'm going to I'm going to make an attempt to avoid Teflon now where I can and other PFAS chemicals. At the end of the day, people see cycling as an environmentally friendly sport and realistically beyond the action of uh, dotting about on bikes, riding the bikes, it's not that environmentally friendly. It's uh it's a, we consume stuff at a ridiculous rate and not I've got to admit I I went to Taiwan a few years back to a major bike manufacturer's facility and came out of there. I went in very excited, came out very deflated, realising how much stuff we use and how dirty the sport is really. So, yeah, since then, I can say I've been trying to change the way the bits and pieces I've used. And now, knowing that, James, I'd definitely be looking at the, the stuff that I stick on my chain. Yeah, I would argue that cycling in general is... An environmentally friendly activity when it's used in place of something else that is far less environmentally friendly. But as far as the sport itself is concerned, it's it's not very good for those reasons that you mentioned. I mean, just look at like the hundreds of caravan vehicles that are following around a bunch of people racing around. Um, and yeah, ma- manufacturing in general for the most part is is often not a not a super environmentally friendly thing. But again, I mean, this is all stuff that we are continuing to diving into continuing to dive into moving forward so yeah we're gonna we're gonna keep banging this drum for a while absolutely yeah i was i was uh i was pleasantly surprised actually shortly before christmas and i mentioned this in a newsletter to to velo recently uh i was just having a, a sort of weekly chat with with wade wallace our founder as i usually do and he mentioned that he really wants us to to push harder on environmental issues uh i don't i don't really know what inspired this particular piece of the discussion but it's something that i think a lot of us individually have been interested in for a very long time it's something we you know we all try to be environmentally conscious where we can but as an organization we didn't have anything in place that said you know cycling tips itself is going to try to to be as environmentally conscious as possibly to you know push climate change issues and things like that we're going to be doing that we're going to do more of it uh and (laughs) Yeah, we don't know exactly what that looks like from a from an organizational standpoint yet. From from the whole company, we're kind of working on that at the moment, uh, trying to educate ourselves and figure out what a company can do that's sort of tiny like us. But we will be, as James said, banging this drum uh, a bit more going forward, and basically just trying to, particularly on the podcast here, just inform listeners out there of things like PFAS that you may be. Maybe you've skimmed and heard of, of at some point, but don't know that much about. Um, just try to inform you so that you can make your own decisions. Uh, I think that's probably what we'll do more so than than come down and say you should absolutely do this. Uh, if we present the information, people can make their own calls. So with that, I think it's time to end this episode. Went a little bit long today, but we do that pretty often. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. 
and also next week's episode and also the week week's episode after that all the way through the year we're super super excited to have you on as a partner we're going to do some fun stuff throughout the year uh maybe we'll figure out some giveaways and things like that uh yeah very excited with that we'll call it a day thanks for listening everybody bye-bye bye-bye